We've got a pretty good amount of material to go through tonight, so let's get started. Let me just open in a short word of prayer. Father, we ask that you bless this time we have together tonight as we look into your word and continue to look at your covenantal dealings with mankind. We thank you for uh, the patience we've had to go through these these things, and we just pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to learn what you would have us to learn tonight specifically as we look into your covenant dealings with David. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you remember, last week we took a step up from the Abrahamic covenant and dealt with the Mosaic covenant. Tonight we're here and we're going to take another step up and deal with the covenant with David. And then hopefully next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to wrap the class up. So just a brief review of last week. The covenant with Israel was gracious. We talked about the fact that it was framed in the uh, redemption of Israel from Egypt. And it was because they'd been delivered, or in the wake of them being delivered, that God gave them this law. I've delivered you, now this is how I would like for you to live, or how I want you to live. They were called as a theocracy, uh, a nation-state that were to exemplify what it's like to live under the law of Yahweh. And their holy life would demonstrate their covenant commitment and serve, and that's how they were to serve as a light to the nations. It wasn't necessarily going knocking door to door at the nations. It was to live like uh, God would have you to live under his covenant. Now the blessings in Canaan were promised for obedience. We saw that. And the cursings were promised for disobedience. And as we shall see, as we get to the new covenant, it will become more clear, but the Mosaic covenant has a built-in obsolescence. And I think most of us would agree with that, because as a theocracy, that part of the covenant ended. There are certainly spiritual aspects of the covenant that carry forward through the promise of the seed, but as a theocracy... Uh, and as a state, uh, that comes to an end in the Mosaic Covenant. I mean, the Mosaic Covenant comes to an end in that sense. Now, I put in a couple of slides here because uh, Al asked a question last week. I thought it was kind of interesting, and it helps us bridge the gap historically. And that is uh, reflecting on what happened when the ark was carried across the Jordan River as the people went into the Promised Land. So I thought it would be interesting to look at that. I'll ask if that was a fulfillment. Well, if you look at Exodus chapter 3 verse 17, you could see how it would certainly be regarded as a fulfillment because the Lord said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of Canaan. I will bring you. And that's where, that's one place he calls it a land of flowing with milk and honey. So the Lord said, I will bring you to Canaan. When the priests carried the ark, And walked into the river Jordan, the upstream water was walled up, and the people crossed on dry land. As was mentioned last week, Joshua had 12 stones from the river stacked up on the bank as a memorial, and I think there was a second stack in the bottom of the riverbed stacked up, which which after the nation crossed, the water 
began to flow again and covered up that stack of rocks. But anyway, in Joshua chapter 4, it says, On that day the Lord brought honor to Joshua, and the people respected him as they had Moses. So there's a, there's a clear sense in which Joshua took Moses' place. Moses functioned as a covenant mediator, and Joshua is going to continue in that role. So there is fulfillment pictured here. God was with them as they entered the promised land. And he makes a point of talking to David, which we will see, about how he has always been with them. As they wandered through the wilderness in tents, he was with them. So yes, there is a fulfillment. Now, here's what I thought was interesting. When Joshua occupied the land, he set up the tabernacle, the tent that they'd been carrying around all these years, With the ark at Shiloh, Joshua 18, verse 1. And 300 years later, the prophet Samuel was born. And the tabernacle and the ark were still at Shiloh. Under the watch of Eli the priest when Samuel was born. And so this helps us to bridge the historical gap because Samuel is the one who leads us to David and his story. So what happened between the time of Joshua and the prophet Samuel? The book of Judges. So you read all through the book of Judges. That's covering the time from Joshua to the birth of the prophet Samuel. So that kind of brings us up to date, historically speaking. Now when we come to David, Israel was of course living under the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant we call it. David and his offspring would represent Israel. The nation would be blessed through their obedience to Yahweh and their reign over the people. Their righteous rule would display to the world what it meant to live in the land under the Lord God. Hence, the covenant with David would bring about the covenant blessings promised in the preceding covenants all the way from Adam to Noah to Abraham and Moses. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We need to set set the scene here. As you remember, of course, Saul was appointed the first king of Israel. He was later rejected because... We're going to have to summarize a lot of the story. He was later rejected because he refused to trust and obey the Lord. And we also noticed that In 1 Samuel 16, when David was still yet a boy, Samuel anointed him as the future king. And his life stands out as an example of his trust and obedience to Yahweh. But four things needed to happen before David's official coronation. As time went by, we know that Saul began to distrust David. Uh, Eventually, a civil war broke out. And while all of this was going on, the Philistines were chomping at the bits. They're saying, look look at them, they're killing each other. They're fighting each other. Let's wait and see who wins, then we'll go in and take over this place. So the four things that had to happen first was this long civil war with Saul must come to an end. And we're told in 2 Samuel 5.3 that in fact it did. Prior to this time, uh, they had made David king over Judah. But the forces of Saul were associated with the northern tribes were still 
against David. And in Second Samuel 5.3, we finally come to an end of the war where David is proclaimed king over all Judah and Israel. Now, Jerusalem was a strategic location. And the second thing that needed to happen was for David to capture the city of Zion and make Jerusalem his capital. If David is now the king over the northern tribes as well as the southern tribes, then it was necessary for David to control Jerusalem. Not only was it on the on the trade main trade route and perhaps the the most prominent city on that trade route, but if he's going to uh, rule the northern tribes, they needed access to him and he needed access to them. Same with the southern tribes. And so that, that's accomplished in the fact that he took control of Jerusalem and, called, and it was called the city of David and became his capital. So that's the second thing that had to happen. Third, the ark was brought to Jerusalem. We see in 2 Samuel 6.17 that described. And fourth, peace and security, we are told in 2 Samuel 7.1 that peace and security came about on all fronts and God gave David rest. Now the ark emphasizes the close connection between David's kingship and the rule of Yahweh. It of course depicts the presence of God with his people. And God's reign and David's reign are here brought together as the ark is brought to Jerusalem. And so it's on the heels of this peace that we actually enter the discussion of the covenant or the narrative of the covenant that God made with David presented in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 4 through 17 and a parallel account is given in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. So we're going to look at, uh, if you want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to look through some of those verses. So it's a great story. It, it's uh, this narrative is so rich we can only touch on certain things, but it's uh, it's an amazing narrative. As the new king, David David decided that what he needed to do was make a house for the Lord. Do you remember the story? He says to Nathan, "You know what? I've got a house built out of oak or whatever it was at the time, and." The ark is still over there in the tent. I need to build a house for the Lord. He wanted to build a permanent structure for the Lord. But the Lord, the Lord spoke through Nathan and says to David, Look, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I will make your name great. Remember we, we saw that when uh, God spoke to Abraham in in uh, Genesis chapter 12. Here he says to David, I will make you a great name. Moreover, the Lord said, I will make you a house. Well, there's a play on words here. It's the, it's the same common word for house in both cases. But when David said, I want to build you a house, he was speaking of a structure to house the Ark of the Covenant. When God says, I will make you a house, he's talking about house in the sense of what? Dynasty, descendants and dynasty. 
So there's there's the play on words. David said, I want to make you a house. He said, no, I want to make you a house. A dynasty. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. In verse 16. Let me back up a moment. I want to say that uh, the significance of the Davidic covenant, uh, which we're going to continue looking at, but the significance of that covenant, I don't think can be overestimated. The promise of an enduring Davidic kingdom has been called the summit of the entire Old Testament. Why might that be? Why might they view this Davidic covenant as something special beyond all else? Or to call it the summit of the entire Old Testament? Well, I think, I think one reason is because it actually culminates the Old Testament story of God's redemption as far as his covenantal dealings. There's no covenant in the Old Testament after the Davidic covenant. The only covenant we're talk, that we see talked about in the Old Testament after the Davidic covenant is the New Covenant from Jeremiah, Ezekiel, prophesied by Isaiah, those types of things. So, so we can call this the summit of the Old Testament because it is in fact the pinnacle as far as God's plan of redemption revealed in the Old Testament and everything else looks forward to something that is beyond the Old Testament. And I hope you'll see some of the significance as we continue to go through this. <clears throat> now, when we talked about the covenant in the garden, we noticed that one of the one of the reasons for not choosing to see it as a covenant was because the word covenant was not used. And remarkably, in the narrative here, with David, we see also that the word covenant is not used. So that doesn't really stand up as a valid reason, because this certainly is a covenant, and it's called so explicitly in these verses. Second Samuel 23, 5, there's three references in Psalm 89, another one in Psalm 132, and there's other places. But just for an example, Second Samuel 23, 5, it says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me, this is David, an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. David realized it was a covenant. The other writings call it a covenant. Now, the king in the Pentateuch, we're looking now back at the law. The Abrahamic covenant promised that kings shall come from you, remember? The ruler among Israel will come from Judah. Remember, we followed Judah. The line of promise. And it says in Genesis 49.10, To him shall be the obedience of the peoples, which to me speaks of, speaks of that worldwide promised blessings that all nations will be blessed through Abraham. The ruler from Jacob will destroy God's enemies and have worldwide dominion. We're told in Numbers 24. This promise of a king is fulfilled in the narrative in the rise of David and his dynasty. So, so let me just say again, this, this is, this is huge. This covenant with David. 
Also, not only are we speaking of a, a Davidic king, we need to see that this king is also a covenant mediator. In addition to being a king, David would now function as a mediator interceding on behalf of the people as Moses and Joshua did. And it's interesting because it's kind of subtle how that picture is presented to us. As David was bringing the ark into Jerusalem and dancing and singing, it says that he was dressed in fine in a fine linen robe with a linen ephod. That's priestly garb that he's wearing when he brought the ark to Jerusalem. Not only that, David personally made burnt offerings and peace offerings, offered those up on behalf of the people and blessed the people in the name of Yahweh. That's a priestly mediatorial function. We see in other places that David continues to function as a mediator. There's a couple of chapters in Second Samuel where you see that illustrated in the storytelling. So that's significant. Also, when the ark was brought to the city of David, God's throne and David's throne became interconnected. David's son Solomon, you'll remember, he's the one who will build a house for my name, says the Lord. And God says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. There's the Emmanuel principle again. And so we see, not only are the, is God's throne and David's throne interconnected, but now sonship is brought into the picture. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And interestingly, at Solomon's coronation, the scriptures say he sat on the throne of Yahweh. It doesn't say he sat on the throne of David. He sat on the throne of Yahweh in place of David. Took David's place on what? On God's throne. So there we have kingship. We have covenant media role, a priestly role, we have the idea of sonship all coming together in David and in his seed. It's amazing. Kingship, sonship, and the covenant mediator are brought together on God's throne through David and the son of David, Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can fulfill all those roles perfectly on our behalf. So here right at the beginning of the Davidic covenant, you have the idea that for us to be right with God and approach God, we must have a mediator. We must have a son of God. We must have a king. And Jesus Christ fills those roles. And like I say, as as we move forward, even though we've still got hundreds of years left, several hundred years left in the Old Testament, this is it. The Davidic covenant and the Davidic line take us to the New Testament. And that's why some people view it as a climax 
of the Old Testament revelation of God's plan of redemption. Now, in the context, of course, the covenantal nature of what God promised to David is clear. He says specifically his dynasty and kingdom will never end. In other words, the promise to Abraham of universal blessing will be realized through a son of David. A Davidic king will be the means by which the promises of land, offspring, and worldwide blessing will be secured. And we see that as coming about in the New Testament. That's one reason why early on uh, at the beginning of this class, one of the key presumptions for the class was that we must we must read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. If you're reading the Old Testament without any regard to the New Testament, you miss this. You miss what this has been pointing to. You miss what all the covenants have been pointing to. Now, is it a conditional covenant or an unconditional covenant? Well, as in the covenant with Abraham, we saw that the covenant would ultimately be fulfilled. There was definitely a unilateral, unconditional element. But we also saw that only those who obey will receive the blessings of the covenant. And in our case here, the dynasty, the Davidic line, won't be removed from David's house, and the covenant will finally be fulfilled. Amen. But, as you remember, as the story goes of all these uh, kings in Israel and Judah, individual kings who transgress will not experience blessing. And it's like, as goes the king, so go the people. The king existed as as a son of God, as a mediator, uh, and when he leads the people astray, they suffer too. And again, we can look back at what we studied before. David may be seen as a new Adam. He may be seen as the true Israel. He may be seen as the true son of Abraham. Which in the New Testament we see is pointing toward Jesus Christ who is the perfect answer to that. The promise of Genesis 3.15 will reach its final fulfillment through one of David's offspring. Now let's pause for a minute and think a little bit about Psalm 72. Psalm 72 helps us understand the relationship between the covenants with Abraham and David. The psalmist prays that the Lord will endow the king calling the king God's royal son, with justice and strength to bless the people. Of note, again, is the anticipation of universal blessing in uh, verses 8 through 17. I think verse 17 says, "May May people be blessed in him. May all nations call him blessed. Speaking of David, but... May the people be blessed in him. May all nations call him blessed. So again, there's that uh, aspect of universal blessing of the nations through what we see here as a Davidic king. Ultimately, of course, Jesus Christ. Clearly, the promise of worldwide blessing given to Abraham will be fulfilled through a son of David. 
Now we'll look a little bit at the Davidic promise in Israel's history. The history of Israel seems to contradict the promise. Why would I say that? How would you agree or disagree with that? Does the history of Israel from David going forward seem to contradict the idea of a fulfilled promise? The, the, the repeated disobedience of the kings. And so you're like, this isn't going well. This isn't going well at all. The last good king was Solomon and he went bad. There were good kings along the way, I admit, but in general that was not the case. And so from looking at Israel's history, the nation ended up in exile under foreign rulers. Even in the second temple period, and what is the second temple period, uh, Don? Right. From the time that they returned from exile, built a temple, a shadow of the formal temple of Solomon. But as time went by, that was eventually uh, modified and improved and became the temple at Herod's time when Jesus was born. So that's the second temple period. So this is saying that even in the second temple period, after the exile, we don't see anyone from David's line in governmental authority. That's bad. Because that was one of the sure elements of the promise. I will not forsake your line, your dynasty. So after the exile, uh, nothing was really resolved as far as the promise of David, the promises to David. Yet, and we see at the end of Second uh, Chronicles, chapter 21, verse 7, you can turn there if you'd like. What it's talking about is that even as the kingship dissolved because of the continued covenant violations, God says again, the covenant with David is irrevocable. So if... If somebody has Second Chronicles 21, verse 7, would you mind reading that? Right. So, even in the midst of this spiraling downward of the kings, God says at the end of Second Chronicles, but I'm not giving up on the covenant with David. It's irrevocable. It's irrevocable. So, in, in the Israel's history, the prophets also looked forward to the day when a new David would come. Now this is after the, uh, especially in the case of uh, the latter prophets, this is after the exile. They're looking for a new David. The coming Davidic king will be a true son of Adam, the true Israel, and will fulfill all the previous, all that the previous Davidic kings were intended to be and to do. The rule over creation first given to Adam will be realized in the government of this future son, this new David. The coming Davidic king is the hope and declaration of the prophets. So you read that in Jeremiah 23, 33, Ezekiel 34. In fact, someone turned to Ezekiel 34 uh, verses 23 and 24, and we'll just get a look at what that verse says. 
This is Ezekiel. This is after they've been carried off into exile. David's long dead. But this says, I will set up a shepherd over them, my son David. They're looking for a new David. And that's what I mean by uh, suggesting that the Davidic covenant is supremely important because it's this coming David that they prophesy of. Not the original David, but a new David. They're looking for a new David. They're looking for a new exodus. They're looking for a new kingdom. And all of that is what lies in the New Testament. Comes to fruition in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. Now, in the New Covenant, we see it proclaimed that the covenant with David is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. If someone has that, that's, of course, speaking of Christ. He will be given the throne of his father, David, and he will rule forever. There's fulfillment. Exactly. A person who will reign forever in himself. Not not another succession of people. <laughs> right. Amen. The Jews didn't see Christ as an eternal person. They were still looking for an earthly succession of kings. Now Jesus' uh, messianic status also fulfills the covenant with Abraham. And if you would turn to Zechariah's prophecy in Luke chapter 1 verse 67... So so let's just read through that real quick. Zechariah's prophecy in Luke chapter 1, verse 67 and following. And it's talking about John the Baptist. It says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now who's Zechariah talking about? The baby in Mary's womb. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, this is Zechariah speaking, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. We being delivered, and God made a big point of this when he delivered Israel from Egypt. I've delivered you so that you may serve me, not Serve me so that I will deliver you. And he's saying the same thing here. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, and to grant us that we, being delivered, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So that's a prophecy 
regarding Jesus Christ. Uh, Zechariah goes on and addresses his son John, but those words are applied to Christ. So that's significant. That's phenomenal. That ties Luke's narrative to everything we've looked at in the Old Testament. Both elements of the Davidic covenant are realized in Jesus Christ. God fulfilled his unbreakable promise to David, and Jesus obeyed all the covenant stipulations. Hallelujah. So let's try and move toward a conclusion here. The covenant with David stands in continuity with the previous covenants. The commission that was given to rule over the world given to Adam, is fulfilled in the rule and the reign of Christ. We'll look at this some more next week, but this is basically the conclusion of the Davidic covenant. It's going to be fulfilled in Christ. Jesus Christ, as David's son, is now reigning at God's right hand. Jesus Christ, David's son, is now reigning at God's right hand. There's not going to be any other David on any other throne. This is it. This is Jesus Christ as David's son reigning. When he returns to consummate his reign, all of God's covenant promises will be fulfilled. Now the aftermath. The return from exile is only a pale shadow of the predicted glorious kingdom for the people of God especially as envisioned by Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. What we see happening after Ezra and Nehemiah was pathetic in comparison. The post-exilic prophets interpret the nature of the restored community and point beyond it to the real fulfillment of the promises. The Old Testament concludes without the promises of God being fulfilled. Those points were taken from Graham Goldsworthy, not Tom Schreiner, so I put his name on there. And this is an old chart I made many years ago, but I thought I'd stick it up here. Don't let it confuse you. Uh, that just shows the prophets uh, all the way from Solomon's uh, ascension through the exiles and everything else. But the, the point is, Here's the United Kingdom when Solomon took the throne. You remember that the Lord told Solomon, due to, due to the grave sin you've fallen into, I'm, ta- I'm tearing your kingdom apart. And in 930, that happened. Jeroboam, the whole division of the kingdom happened. And after that, we see Israel separate from Judah. That's the divided kingdom. Now, Israel was dispersed by the Assyrians in 722. They went to the four winds. They were hauled off and were taken to the four winds. And whatever Israelites remained in the northern kingdom, the Assyrians brought in foreign peoples, settled them there so that they would intermarry. And the people in Judah, ever since then, never looked at them as a as Israelites, they looked at them as half-breeds. They, they never wanted anything to do with the Samaritans. But what we see is that the line of David continued until the exile in 586. And here you can see what time Jeremiah was speaking, Ezekiel, Daniel. 
here's the pre-exilic prophets speaking to uh, Judah. And then after the exile, we see Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. But the point is, David's reign began some back, sometime prior to here. So his, his dynasty lasted 417 or 427 years, something like that. That's impressive. That matches or exceeds all the ancient Egyptian dynasties. It rivals the ancient Chinese dynasties. That was a long time for the dynasty of David to rule. And it ended at the exile. Now the last Davidic king, I believe according to Second Chronicles 36.11, was Zedekiah. And he died in 587. In captivity. They hauled him off. Threw him in jail. And he blinded his eyes. Threw him in jail. And he died. That was, according to my resources, was the last Davidic king. Pretty interesting, huh? So, as far as our schematic of progress, we've now addressed the Davidic covenant. And next week, hopefully, we'll be able to get through the final material uh, involving the New Covenant. But I'll just give you a little preview, something to think about during the week. When we come to Matthew chapter 1, Israel is still in exile. They're still under the Mosaic Covenant. They're in the land, but they're in exile. There's no Davidic king. They're in apostasy, and they're still in exile. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi all make clear that Israel continues in exile. Israel remains defiled before God with the guilt of sin, as we're told in Ezra chapter 9. They still sit, not only at the time of Christ. But if you want to project it, they still sit today in exile. They still sit under foreign rule at the time of Christ. There is still no descendant of David ruling over them. Still in exile despite dwelling in the promised land. So we're going to end the class here. Maybe have some time for discussion and get ready for uh, next week as the final week on the new covenant. Any questions? Well, I'm speaking off the top of my head. They're obviously, I mean, some people make a big deal out of 1948. That was a contrived political thing. That was not the nation Israel returning to the land. Especially not in belief. Israel were gathered from four corners and put there, still in their unbelief. So there's a sense that you could say they're still in exile. They're still in spiritual exile. Pretty interesting stuff. Anybody else? Sure. You're you're in Second Samuel chapter seven. Exactly. And the point is, there's a list of promises. Those promises constitute a covenant, even though the word covenant. Itself is not used. 
Yeah, as a matter of fact, those are all the unconditional elements. Yeah, very good. So the word covenant's not there. And the only reason I brought that up was because people used that to say there was no covenant in the garden because the word covenant was not used there either. Right. Oh, yeah, it, it pops up numerous times later, historically later in Scripture. But, yes, the word covenant's there all over the place. Mm-hmm. Right. And because of disobedience, they ended up in exile and they lost the land. They virtually had everything God promised them, land-wise and seed-wise, but they lost it. Any other uh, questions or comments? None? Okay, Al, would you mind closing us in prayer?